Well, good morning. Uh, if you're here for the first time, uh, know that we're glad you're with us today. Or if you're with us online, uh, we're thankful that you've decided to be with us. You know, last week uh, we started a new series in 2 Corinthians titled The Transformed Life. And last week we saw how God comforts his people in their affliction. And Paul, uh, the author of 2 Corinthians, uh, we saw last week that he's a bit tired and weary by the time he gets to this letter. Which remember, 2 Corinthians is not the second letter, it's actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote. Uh, We don't have the first letter, uh, but Paul mentions the first letter in his second letter, which is what we call 1 Corinthians. Uh, We also know, uh, and we'll see today, that Paul wrote a third letter, uh, which is often referred to as the painful letter, uh, which uh, then brings us to the fourth letter that we now call 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians, the fourth letter, uh, is considered Paul's most emotional letter, where he is writing uh, when he is tired and weary and quite possibly with tears. Uh, Because this church, the Corinthian church, uh, is a very messy church with very messy people uh, with messy lives in a very messy city. And because of this, Paul's uh, relationship with them is, well, uh, it's a mess. It's complicated. And so if your life feels completely messy uh, and complicated, well, the book of 2 Corinthians is for you. You know, Paul uh, had many churches that he started, that he pastored, that he cared for, uh, but the Corinthian church was the one that it kept him up at night. Uh, It's the one that he lost the most sleep over. You know, as Pastor Tony Morita pointed out, knowing that this church, as well as other churches in the New Testament, have problems and was a mess is actually very encouraging. Um, You know, he pointed out that the great Charles Spurgeon's church had major problems. John Calvin's church had problems. Grimke uh, dealt with all sorts of complaints during the Spanish flu. Jonathan Edwards was kicked out of his church. Uh, And John Piper, at one point, talked about wanting to quit. And so it's fair to say that a messy church with messy lives is actually the norm. Uh, And then he went on to say something that I get kind of a kick out of, uh, asking why is this a common thing in churches? And Pastor Tony said, because people like you are in them and people like me pastor them. Um, (laughs) I thought that was great because, well, it's true. I've said this a lot recently. We're a broken church for broken people. uh, And I'm a broken person pastoring broken people. Uh, If if you're uh, looking for a perfect church, uh, let me just tell you, you're in the wrong place. Because we live in a broken world. Uh, communication will always break down, feelings will always be hurt, and and unfortunately, sin still exists. Uh, Now, let me be very clear. This is not an excuse to sin, but it's helpful for maintaining healthy expectations because, again, we're a broken church for broken people in need of a Redeemer to come uh, that can mend back together that which is broken. We're a church that desperately needs Jesus I'm a pastor and you're a people that desperately need Jesus to heal our broken hearts and to mend our broken lives. And this is what we'll see continually through our series in 2 Corinthians called The Transformed Life. Uh, We see a complicated relationship with complicated people. And today we'll start to get into the nitty gritty of some of these complications that Paul had. And as soon as I say that, I recognize that when we read this passage, it won't at first seem like anything too crazy. In fact, the complication we'll see is that Paul changed his travel plans, uh, which caused them to lose trust in Paul. I I want to say up front that this is not one of those passages that I would pick just to preach a one-off sermon. Uh, It's basically Paul defending his travel itinerary. Uh, However, at the surface, it may seem a bit mundane, but don't turn off because this is, in fact, God's Word with so much deep uh, gold, rich gold to mine out. You know, I do believe that God has a timely word for us today. 
uh, that can in fact encourage us and sharpen us. Uh, and so I want to go ahead and read our entire passage, uh, and then we'll go from there. Okay, Look starting at verse uh, 12 in chapter 1. It says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and, having, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call, on, I, I call God to witness against me. It was, not, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we worked for you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice." For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And so just as a refresher uh, to give some of this backstory, if you remember from last week, Paul is writing this letter and he's defending his apostleship. He's defending his authority uh, because they were people in the Corinthian, there were people in the Corinthian church that thought uh, you cannot have gone through so much uh, hardship and be someone who was sent out by God with a unique authority. And then also in our passage that we just read, we saw beginning to we see Paul beginning to make his defense of what from the from the outside seemed like a messy situation, a situation that caused his critics to criticize him. In this instance, from our text, we see Paul made plans to visit them, but then he changed his plans. And it seems that the Corinthian church did not like that he did that. And now he needs to explain himself and he needs to defend himself, defend his integrity as a leader. And so this was a, a messy situation and Paul's integrity as a leader was under attack because he said he would do one thing, but yet he did another. And from the outside looking in, it just looked a little fishy. You know, possibly raising questions like, did Paul lie to them? Did Paul mislead them? Is Paul even reliable? Can Paul be trusted? These are things that Paul was up against. Our passage today provides a response to this specific issue, which for us here today provides an example of someone defending his integrity in a mess. Uh, Pastor Kent Hughes, as well as other scholars and pastors, uh, have been very helpful for me this week um, and have all tended to stick with a similar theme from this passage, uh, labeling this section in the scripture, integrity in ministry. 
which is what we'll use for our main idea, uh, maintaining a ministry of integrity in a messy world. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our world is broken, uh, life is messy, communication will break down, misunderstandings will happen, and sin is real because we're broken people living in a broken world. And yes, this text, when taught, is often directed towards those in vocational ministry uh, for pastors and leaders. And in many ways, many ways, this is directed to me directly uh, as your pastor. Um, and you'll see the more we get into this, I'm preaching to myself this week. Um, you know, I really do this every week, but really this week it will be more obvious and direct, okay? But I don't want you to check out because if you're a Christian, you too are in ministry, Because as we know from Paul in Ephesians 4, the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Uh, My ministry is to equip you, the Christian, for your ministry. And so if you call New City Church home or if you're a follower of Jesus, this message is for you. And so uh, if if you're not a Christian here today, take this as an opportunity to peek behind the curtain to hopefully see that what we proclaim with our mouth, although certainly not perfect, should impact our hearts and lives. It should transform our lives. And so again, the big question for today is how do we maintain integrity in ministry when the world is a mess? And just to be very transparent, this topic for me as a pastor, as your pastor, is very weighty. You know, I do not take this lightly. Integrity and character as a pastor are of utmost importance. And unfortunately, over the past several years and even over the past several months, this has been put on full display with various pastors around the United States. Character and integrity and ministry are not to be taken lightly. But what's interesting here, as we've said, Paul's integrity and trustworthiness was under attack, which Paul knows is a really big deal. You know, Paul's the guy who wrote, uh, wrote about the qualifications for elders in the pastoral letters. And our text gives his response for us to dive into. And yes, uh, this text draws out the importance of integrity in ministry, but it is from a different angle. It's from a different perspective. It's from Paul defending his integrity and authenticity uh, when others doubted him and criticized him. And so that said, this is how we're going to divide our time. Uh, We're going to have two turns today. Number one, Paul's critics. And number two, Paul's response. In our first turn, uh, seeing Paul's critics, I want to make sure we understand the full scenario and make sure you see for yourself from our passage the mess that Paul is in from his critics. And then in the second turn, where we'll spend most of our time, we'll see more of Paul's response and his defense and his integrity and holiness uh, and trustworthiness in ministry. So out of Paul's response in the second point, we're going to have four charges for enduring in faithfulness, for maintaining integrity in ministry uh, and, uh, that I've really written specifically for myself. Principles for me that I think we can draw out of this text, that, we, that we'll see in this text, and hopefully you can benefit from them from you too. Uh, and I'll give those to you in just a few minutes. So we're going we're gonna to skip around a bit today uh, because Paul gives this back and forth response between him defending himself and kind of explaining what's going on. Uh, and so in these, two, you know, kind of in these two categories, seeing Paul's critics uh, and then Paul's response, they're really interwoven together. Uh, and so look back at verse 15 in chapter 1 where we see more of what's going on with Paul and his critics. Paul says in verse 15, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. So that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. 
Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? And so here we see Paul bringing up a concern that was raised about Paul and his trustworthiness and integrity, addressing head-on, number one, Paul's critics. We can infer from what we just read and what we, from, from what we also know uh, in 1 Corinthians 16 and also from Acts 18, uh, that Paul said he was going to visit them again. But what we now know, Paul changed his mind. He changed his travel plans. And we see this confirmed at the beginning of chapter 2. He says he made up his mind to not make another painful visit to them. Which, uh, just to get into the spirit of changing travel plans... I can't help but think of one significant story from my life that you may have heard. Um, you know, if you're fairly new here, it's a story of me of being on a short-term mission trip in South Asia, uh, going out to this village, sharing the gospel, and in three days on a short-term mission trip, a church with birth. It's a story that we t- I tell often. And I tell it often because this specific experience greatly influenced and propelled us on our journey to plant New City Church uh, for us here today. Well, a little fun detail about that story that I often leave out is that I wasn't actually supposed to go to that village. The two other guys with me were supposed to go to that village. You know, earlier that week, we sat down in a living room uh, and we drew out our plans on a whiteboard. If you know me, you know I love a whiteboard. It makes me feel like a coach. It's great. Um, you know, well, there was, there was me, my good friend that came with me, and another friend that was living there for six months uh, doing something called hands-on, uh, which, by the way, as a shameless plug, we still have, uh, we're still hoping to send one of you to South Asia to, for six months just to do just that. But anyways, there we were, uh, the three of us drawing out our plan on a whiteboard. One group was going to this village by motorcycle, and one, uh, and one village was within walking distance. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I, being the good friend that I am, I wanted to give my friend a good South Asia motorcycle experience. Uh, and if you know anything about being on a motorcycle in South Asia, uh, let's just say it's a wild ride. It's not uncommon, just for mothers, for example, uh, to be sitting on the back of a motorcycle, not holding on to anything, just kind of propped up on the back of the uh, motorcycle, not holding on to anything except for the baby that is in their arms. Uh, while, while swerving through a sea of cars and right next to them might, might potentially be two men transporting a washing machine onto the back of a motorcycle. Uh, this is not a joke. Uh, this is very serious. I mean, all, you know, kind of swerving through traffic uh, where there's ba- traffic laws basically don't exist. And so a South Asia motorcycle experience is one to be remembered. And I knew my friend was terrified. Uh, and so I was thrilled and excited uh, and giddy to send him and not me um, to get on a motorcycle because I had done it before um, and I had experienced it and now it was his turn. That was the plan. He was excited and I was getting him pumped up uh, and psyched out and terrified all at the same time. Um, and I was having a great time with it. It was probably too much fun with it, to be honest. Uh, well, come to find out later that day, because there were four people in his group and three in mine, the plans changed. And I would be the one to get on that motorcycle, not my friend. And so there was me, a pastor and a translator, and all three of us hop on this motorcycle. Uh, I'm sandwiched between two of them. I'm twice the size of both of these guys. uh, And we zigzag our way through uh, the the back country to a remote village, and the rest is history. And so maybe it's fair to say God used a small change of plans for his purposes. And here we are today reading a letter that was written that has greatly shaped my own life 
because of a small change of plans. And today, we see Paul defending himself to his critics that, yes, uh, he is, in fact, still trustworthy, although his travel plans changed. And so we see this, uh, as Paul says in verse 17, we see him responding to, the, the, to what he, he was criticized for. He says, was I vacillating when, I, when he did this, saying yes from one side and no from another? You know, it seems like from his critics, he couldn't make up his mind. He said yes one minute and then no the next, uh, as if he was kind of waffling back and forth, uh, which we, we must absolutely affirm as followers of Jesus, we need to be a people that stick to, our, to, stick to our word. Our yes must be yes and our no's must be no. And this caused Paul's critics to attack his integrity and trustworthiness, seeming uh, as if he had no backbone. I mean, Paul did tell them in 1 Corinthians 16 that he was going to come and see them again. But... Things changed, and Paul got a negative report about this church and, and had to make a painful visit to them, as we've seen here in 2 Corinthians. Uh, and Paul, using wisdom, did not want to do that again. And instead of visiting them, he wrote that third painful letter, which we now know was good for the Corinthian church, but it still caused Paul to receive criticism. Because instead of visiting, like he said, he wrote that third painful letter, which explains why in chapter 2, verse two to, verses 2 and 3, he said, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. So Paul is explaining himself to his critics that he changed his plans because he knew that if he visited them, it would not go well. And that third painful letter was better for them, the church, than him coming. That, eventually, uh, this, that letter eventually led them to repentance, which again, exp- all of this explains the context of their messy relationship that 2 Corinthians was written out of. And so I want to be very clear about this. This text does not give us an excuse to be unreliable people and to just change our plans on a whim. No, God's word is very clear. We must be trustworthy people. But rather, what this text calls us to to, and what Paul models for us is to seek understanding, to see the entire picture. Uh, And here we see Paul slowing down and taking time to explain himself because the Corinthian church only saw it from one side of the story. And so Paul was not flaky and unreliable. No, Paul was proving his trustworthiness uh, by filling in the gaps and explaining what uh, he did. That was a misunderstanding that needed to be explained. And so the Corinthian church, they saw it as a sin issue, believing that Paul wasn't trustworthy. But I think it's fair to say that it wasn't a sin issue. It was a communication issue. And in his effort to communicate to the Corinthian church, Paul modeled a few principles for us for maintaining integrity in a messy world. And so look back at the very beginning of our entire chapter, uh, of our entire passage for today, starting in verse 12 of chapter 1. We're going to read through verses 14. Uh, This is what Paul said. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Which leads us to our second turn, where we'll, see most of, where we'll spend most of our time. Number two, uh, Paul's response. Again, Paul's critics are criticizing him uh, for, seeming to, for being indecisive, 
uh, for, not, for, for seeming to be not trustworthy or seeming to waffle back and forth or possibly being flaky. Uh, and as a, as a response, in his defense, Paul clarifies that he maintained holiness, that he was, in fact, not, uh, this was not a sin issue. He says in verse 12, that they behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Paul maintained integrity, is what he's saying. And here in verse 12, uh, where it says simplicity, some, some manuscripts say holiness. Uh, one translation says God-given sincerity and purity. Another translation says uh, holiness and godly sincerity. And so in his re- response, he affirms that he was being upright and above reproach, saying his integrity and character can, in fact, be trusted. And so this is what I want to do for the rest of our time, okay? Uh, through Paul's defense of his integrity, I want to draw out four charges that we can learn from Paul's response. We've got, so we've got four charges for maintaining integrity in ministry. And as I said earlier, these charges I'm giving directly to myself as a pastor that desperately wants to maintain integrity and character in a messy and sinful world. These are four charges for me uh, and for all those in ministry, which I said, which I said is if, you're, if you follow Jesus, uh, these are for you as well. Because if you follow Jesus, your life too is a ministry. So pay attention. I hope these will encourage one another uh, towards godliness and integrity in a messy world. And so I'm going to give these to each as you go. Uh, but look back at verse 12. The first two come out of verse 12. It says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. Paul says, This is our boast. He says, The testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. And so, this idea of living with a clear conscience is a common theme in Paul's letters, especially in the pastoral epistles. Just to give you one example, Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.9 that pastors and leaders must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And so when we think of growing in godliness and character, there are several factors that we must take into consideration. Uh, These are important. We have to actually know what's right and wrong. We need to make sure the Bible is our foundation. We can't lead, we can't let our conscience and what we think and want be our God. God's word must be our first and primary God. Because in reality, our conscience, our wants and desires, they're often deceptive. And so God's word, it must be our guide and our standard. Being, just being aware of and, and knowing what is sin is important. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to be in our Bibles. We need to grow in the knowledge of who God is. You know, for example... You know, you can't say as a Christian, my conscience told me to steal, (laughs) Uh, so I did it. No, that's silly. That's sin. That's called sin. There are many very clear black and white sin issues that are considered sin. However, there are also areas or situations that are grayer in nature, where two people may have different convictions, where wisdom and discernment come into play. For example, Here's one example. Paul thought uh, it was better for him to remain single than to get married. Uh, it was, this was his own personal conviction. He believed, Paul believed that he, God called him personally to remain single, and so he did it. But he knew, Paul knew that that wasn't for everybody. But that was his own personal conviction. And in, in this instance with the Corinthian church, Paul believed that the best and most loving thing for him to do was to send the letter and not uh, to return to them face to face. And so he changed his plans. Paul was not being untruthful or sinful. He believed and was convinced that this was the best thing for him to do. And in so doing, his conscience, 
was clear before the Lord. Which leads us to our first charge. Number one, don't hide sin nor ignore conviction. Live with a clear conscience. Paul said they behaved in the world with holiness and purity. Uh, This was not a sin issue Paul was trying to hide. He was following the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And this is important. It appeared as if Paul was waffling and untrustworthy, not sticking to his word. But rather, Paul defends himself and communicates that he has nothing to hide and that his character and integrity were upright and that he was following the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And just, so brothers and sisters, take Paul's example and follow it. Paul had nothing to hide. And so make sure you have nothing to hide because you can't live with a clear conscience if you're hiding sin. A secret life does not honor the Lord. Sin in the dark will grow, but sin brought into the light provides the opportunity for it to be put to death. Here are a few practical examples uh, of practical things in my own life. Right, like my wife, Kelly, she has access to my phone and my computer whenever she wants it. Right, she, she, can have it uh, she can have it whenever she wants it. We just don't do fishy in our house. We hide nothing. Like a small lie in our house is a major problem. We don't tolerate small lies. Like if someone gets caught into a small lie in our house, we have the privilege and the complete, uh, to be completely suspicious like in our, in our house, we hide nothing. We all need people in our lives uh, who know all of our junk, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that will hold us accountable and love us uh, to, by telling us hard things and stay with us and encourage us through it, through it. And then also, just as we see Paul model, we can't ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Growing in holiness and godliness is a lifelong journey. And one of the greatest dangers to growing in godliness is to ignore conviction, to be calloused by it, and to excuse sin and to sweep it under the rug. May we be a people that are sensitive to God's Spirit working in our life to kill sin, to kill every sin possible. Y'all, this is a lifelong journey, as John Owen has said. I quote him often, kill sin or it will be killing you. Again, don't hide sin nor ignore conviction, but live with a clear conscience. So let me ask, what sin do you need to confess today? What do you need to bring to the light? Is your conscience clear before the Lord? And so all that to say, when we talk about striving towards holiness and living with a clear conscience, as Paul said, we can't do it without noticing how this is made possible. This is so important when we talk about growing in godliness and character. So pay attention here. Paul said in the second half of verse 12, we'll read it again. It says, We behaved in the world, but with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Paul realizes and recognizes that living an upright and godly life cannot be accomplished by worldly wisdom. So I hate to break it to you. But you're not going to get seven steps to living a godly life for me today. Um, No, you're going to be reminded that you and I both desperately need the grace of God in our life, which leads me to our second charge. Number two, live empowered by by God's grace, not worldly wisdom. I want to be very clear here. Yes, discipline for holiness is very important. 
Without discipline, holiness will not happen. We desperately need discipline in our life. Yes, put up safeguards, protect yourself, watch your life, grow in discipline, grow in self-control. But the other side of the coin is any discipline apart from the grace and power of God will not get you very far. When we start following Jesus, we don't just tweak a few things and make our lives better. No, our lives are completely transformed. We need completely new lives. We don't need to be made better. We need to be made new. And this doesn't happen in your own strength and wisdom, but on the grace and power of God. Brothers and sisters, this is so important and so encouraging and so important for us to remember. Our holiness is not left up to our own power and strength. Yes, we are certainly part of the process. And yes, we are completely responsible for our sin and disobedience. But we are not left without power. We, we will see this over and over and over again in 2 Corinthians. We see God's people as our broken vessels dependent on God's power to be transformed. We don't depend on our own strength and power. We depend on God's strength and power. And when we get to the end of our life, when we see Jesus face to face on the day of the Lord, as Paul says in verse 14 in chapter 1, he says, On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. Y'all, how good is that? The finish line for the Corinthian church was on Paul's mind. And all of us here today that trust in Jesus, we will be looking at each other, boasting in each other, saying, look, like you made it. You've been fully transformed. God finished his work in you. There will be a cheering and a celebrating because God will finish what he starts by his grace. Listen, this is so important for us to remember as we strive for godliness. God saves us by his grace. God sustains us by his grace. And he finishes us by his grace. Because through the gospel, when Jesus walked this earth, he living, living a completely holy and upright life, living above reproach and always pleasing God, Jesus came to this earth to help us to do what we could not do. You and I, as much as we try, we cannot live a perfectly holy life. We will fail. We will mess up. But Jesus did not fail. He did not mess up. But rather, he went to the cross to take away our sin. And he gave us what we did not deserve. This is God's grace. This is God's grace. Getting what we do not deserve. And when we put our trust in Jesus, God gives us his holiness and his integrity. So that when we fail, not if, but when we fail, God, by his grace, he upholds us and he continues to empower us and he continues to transform us. And when we fail in God's eyes, because of his grace, we're still completely holy and clean. And so that by God's grace alone, we can get back up and get out of the mud and continually to live empowered by God's grace so that we will sin less and less. And when we get to the end, by God's grace, on the day of the Lord, we will be able to boast about each other because we will be able to look at each other and say, we made it. You made it. Because Jesus alone, we made it. And so how do we maintain a ministry of integrity? What will keep us continually bringing our sin to light? What will keep us to not ignore conviction and to live with a clear conscience? We continually look to Jesus who empowers us to do these things. How do we sin less and less? How do we grow in integrity and holiness? We look to Jesus more and more. Because listen, we often think that following Jesus is a bunch of no's. Like, don't do this. Don't do that. 
But as Paul says in our passage, following Jesus is not one big fat no. Following Jesus is an infinite and a glorious yes. Paul was not waffling back and forth saying yes one minute and no the next. He was following Jesus' direction. Look what Paul says starting in verse 18. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaiming, who we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has uh, also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so Paul here is shifting their attention to what really matters. They were concerned about his validity as an apostle, believing that he wasn't trustworthy because uh, he did not come to them. And Paul addresses their concerns and then he reminds them of his validity and as an apostle but because, of his pro- because of his proclamation of Jesus. That proclaiming Christ and following Jesus' direction, following the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as verse 20 says that, uh, says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. They were concerned with Paul seeming to break a promise and Paul directs their atten- attention to Jesus' promises. Paul defends himself. He says his conscience is clear, but then he essentially says, don't look to me, look to Jesus. Don't look at my promises, look at Jesus' promises. So what's our next charge for living with integrity in Jesus? Number three, live in the yeses of Jesus. Are there things that we are to avoid? Yes, absolutely. The Bible is crystal clear on this. Should we know about them and not do them? Yes, again, we are to kill sin. Constantly sin, uh, seek to sin less and less. But if all of our attention in our Christian life are on the things that we cannot do, we won't become more like Jesus. We'll just get disgruntled and discouraged. You know, I like to think of this as a fence, like a fence kind of around our yard. You know, we moved into our house, and one of the benefits was that we had a fence, you know, with a dog and three small kids. A fence is a good thing. Um, And a a small important detail, you know, behind our fence, there's uh, 18 acres of a a nature preserve. And when we first moved in, our neighbor, um, who also just moved in with a small dog and uh, with, with, with small kids and a dog, he told us uh, that they would not let their kids play in their backyard because of the, all of the wild animals that came up to their door, like deer uh, and raccoons and foxes and what I like to call uh, wild dog-eating boar uh, with quite possibly also alligators back there because, well, we live in Florida. And not to mention, I'm pretty sure the person who lived in our house before us loved the animal wildlife and fed them to draw them in. Uh, because, right, who needs the zoo when you can bring the zoo to you? Which, coming soon, I plan to start doing as well. Uh, but when we first moved in, hearing this and seeing these raccoon and foxes and deer and wild boar, uh, we told our kids, listen to me, okay? You do not go behind that fence. There are wild pigs and alligators back there, and they will eat you. They will eat you. And so you see this fence? It's for your safety. Like, don't go behind this fence. So you see everything inside our fence? Like, play here. Don't go over there. Play here. Because pigs and alligators and wild boar, uh, they will eat you over there. But you can have fun in here, okay? And making this connection here, God has given us a fence of things to avoid for our benefit. It's for our good. 
Because outside of that fence, the enemy is there to steal, kill, and destroy. But inside the fence are God's yeses, and therefore your joy and your gladness. Again, if all of our attention in our Christian life are on the things that we can't do, if all of our attention is on the things that are outside of the fence, we won't become more like Jesus. We'll just get disgruntled and discouraged. Because we need to remember the end goal is not just to stop sinning. The end goal is to become more like Jesus. We run away from sin and we run to Jesus and we become more like Jesus by running hard with joy inside of the fence of God's design. Just one practical example of how this plays out in my life. You know, Kelly, my wife, is a gift from the Lord. And the Bible has very clear instructions for God's design of marriage. Inside the fence of God's design, there are relational and emotional and physical gifts to be enjoyed just for me and just for her. I am hers and she is mine and we don't have to share. Right? That's a special gift. However, outside of the fence is danger and destruction. But the problem is outside of the fence is often enticing. And so thankfully we have a fence. We have uh, the fence that I have put around, we have put around our marriage is that I won't be left alone in private with another woman uh, and, and her uh, with another man. I also am not going to be friends with another woman that is not also her friend. Like, and so if you're a lady and you want to be friends with me, well, you have to be friends with my wife, okay? Um, that's just one practical life example that could be applied to so many different areas. We've placed, uh, so that's a healthy fence that we've placed around our lives that are for our good. And instead of begrudging the fence, I know it's a safe space. And listen, there are so many yeses that we gain in Christ that are inside of the fence. Live with, joy of, live with the joy of being inside the fence of safety instead of begrudging the fence and longing to be on the other side of the fence. And to be very clear, we cannot miss here today as we talk about living in the yeses of Jesus that the biggest yes of Jesus that is inside the fence is that we get God himself. Yes, there are spiritual blessings inside the fence. Yes, we're given a great purpose. We're given a great calling inside the fence. Yes, the fence gives clear boundaries for our life. Yes, we're given peace and comfort. Yes, we're given a sure foundation inside the fence. But the greatest yes we have in the gospel is that inside the fence is God himself. The greatest yes in following Jesus is not a better life or living a moral life. The greatest yes is God himself. The reason we run to sin outside of the fence is simple. We're not satisfied with the God who is inside the fence. We may not verbally say this, but the truth is every time we sin, we're declaring that our action, with our actions that God is not enough. God is inside the fence, but yet we're not satisfied, so we want to go outside of the fence. You know, we think maybe God's not satisfying me, so we need something else like uh, substance abuse or money uh, or status or power or comfort or sex or people or relationships uh, or fill in the blank. Listen, maintaining a ministry of integrity is found by living in the yeses of Jesus, by ba daily being content with God himself and in all. Because with God, just as Paul says in verse 21 and 22, God establishes us, God anointed us, God seals us and gives us his spirit as a guarantee. There's so much truth right here that we could sit in. Just in these two verses, we could sit in. Just when we're, when we're with God, we're established, we're secure, we're confirmed. When we're with God, we don't need the approval of others because we're with God. We're established and approved by the God of the universe. And then he said, because with God, through the gospel, we're anointed. Listen, if you proclaim Jesus as Lord, you have been anointed by God. 
I don't have special, uh, some special anointing because I'm a pastor. Like, we don't have to pray for that. No, all Christians who proclaim Jesus, as Paul says, have been anointed by God. That's a fun one, maybe discuss later. And then he says, uh, when we're with God, we're sealed, which means God has claimed you as his own. As his own, we've been stamped and we've been sealed by his own by God. And he also says he's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So how do we know that God will sustain us in holiness and complete us to that end? Well, he's put the Spirit inside of us to convict us of our sins and to transform our lives. So get this. If you're convicted of sin, you're wanting to grow and delighting in God's word and seeking repentance and growing in the fruits of the Spirit and building a fence around your life. If you're doing all of these things, or maybe even just a few of them, the Spirit is working inside of you, reminding you of his guarantee that he will complete you. Yes, there are so many yeses that come with Jesus, but we must remember that God is the greatest yes. I want to keep moving here so we can get to our last charge for today. And Paul explains again. Look at, look at, look at verse 2. He, we, see his, uh, we, see, we see him displaying his love for the Corinthian church. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 4, starting in chapter 2. It says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul changed his plans because he loved them. Paul wanted what was best for them. It pained Paul and it hurt his heart to write that third letter. He wrote that third letter in tears, but he did it for them because he loved them. It was a tough love for this church. It was a love that was shown in tears, which leads us to our last charge for today. Number four, love with tears. Paul didn't do the easy thing. He did the loving thing. Addressing their sin was done because he loved them. So how do we maintain integrity in ministry? We put people around us that will love us with tears, that will correct us, rebuke us, cry with us, and lovingly point us back to Christ. As Pastor Tony Marita said, it would have been easy just to cancel the Corinthians. But he didn't do that. Rather, as 1 Corinthians 13 says that he wrote to this exact church before this painful letter. Paul had already told them, and he wrote them, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And here is Paul in 2 Corinthians in his fourth letter, writing to a church that has caused him many tears, and he's putting his money where his mouth is. He could have canceled them, but he didn't. He stayed with them, and he encouraged them, and he endured with them. You know, as as Pastor Tony Marita has said, we have too many temper temper tantrums and not enough tears. Brothers and sisters, I want to close with this. We're all going to fall short at some point. We're all broken people living in a broken world, but may we not forget that Jesus bears our burdens with us, and he came to fix that which was broken. And Jesus calls us to bear each other's burdens and brokenness and to pick each other up and to love with tears by pointing each other back to Jesus who heals our broken hearts and mends our broken lives. So if you're not a Christian and you're listening here today, if all of this is true, then you must know that the most loving thing I could do for you would be to plead with you in tears, right? to put your faith in Jesus. Because although we are not holy with perfect character when we trust in Jesus, we gain his holiness and his perfect character. This is good news for us as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, it can be good news for you too. 
One of my biggest fears in preaching a message like this, that you would, it would be that you would, it's, it's that you would unintentionally hear that you need to clean up your life and grow in integrity and character so that you can then come to Jesus. And I want to say to that, absolutely not. You don't need to first clean up your life. You need to first come to Jesus. You come to him in all your mess, just as you are, and you put your faith in him, and Jesus makes you clean and new by his grace and power, and not in your own power and discipline. I pray that you would trust in Jesus. New City Church, the, questions, uh, the question we've asked today is, how do we maintain a ministry of integrity in a messy world? And th- There are many things that we could have said, but our passage today, uh, we've seen that we don't hide sin nor ignore conviction. We live with a clear conscience. We're empowered by the grace of God, not worldly wisdom. We live in the yeses of Jesus, delighting inside the fence with God, who is our greatest yes. And then lastly, we love with tears, knowing that our life will be messy, but we bear one another's burdens for each other's joy in the Lord. This is not easy, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Being transformed to be like Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. God, we need your help. Would you guide us and direct us? God, would you transform us? Would you transform each and every single one of our lives? If we have not trusted in Jesus, would we put our trust in Jesus? If we have trusted in Jesus by your grace, would you continue to transform us to make us more like Christ? Father, we need your help and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.